Mini episode 1455 of the FDA Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini-episode 1455. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here. And we have back with us here uh, one of our favorite guests. We haven't had this gentleman in some time here, and uh, it is uh, a shame that the unpleasantness in the world is uh, what has uh, led to him coming uh, back on. Uh, We'll have to uh, talk to him here subsequently about something uh, nicer than this, uh, more pleasant, but... uh, the list of things that are more pleasant than what's going on presently in Ukraine is just about endless, unfortunately. And uh, our guest is somebody who is well acquainted with the situation geopolitically from a number of different angles. Uh, I speak, of course, uh, of, of a gentleman who had served in Congress as the first CPA ever to be elected to Congress uh, from the great state of New York in the New York City area specifically, uh, Joe Diaguardi. Uh, it's our pleasure to welcome him back to the show. Of course, uh, some of the organizations that he has uh, stood up here over a period of time, Truth in Government, the Albanian American Civic League, among others. And uh, as somebody who was, uh, if, if I'm, if, if Wikipedia is to be believed, and this is not always the case. Uh, sometimes we've found it to be, uh, you know, inaccurate when we go to quote that. But uh, uh, an active member of the executive committee of the Congressional Human Rights Congress, whilst in Congress. So uh, it is our pleasure to welcome back to the show, Joe Diaguardia. Joe, it's uh, our great honor and pleasure to have you back on today, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so good to hear from you again, and Steve and. Uh, keep up the good work. We need communication. Information is power. That's what's going wrong right now, as you know, with Russia and the rest of Europe. Uh, the lying that's going on is incredible, and it just makes me sick. Uh, I just was watching the news, and Russia is trying to pan this off as some kind of ordinary military thing that they you know, have to do uh, to clean up things when they're killing people left and right. There's definitely war crimes going on. Exactly what happened the Albanian people in the uh, 90s, uh, they suffered a lot, but they came out of it. And I hope today that we can do the same for Ukraine. I like I like the unity that's surrounding this issue, in, in Europe especially. But now we got the big problem of the capital and the tanks are surrounding, uh, we used to call it Kiev, but now it's Kiev. Uh, so we just have to bugger on, as, as uh, Winston Churchill said, keep buggering on. And that's what we're doing. That is the case, absolutely. And uh, specifically, uh, and you're right about the situation with uh, Albania in the 90s, but if we go back a couple of decades, uh, you go back to a period in time where uh, Albania and the, uh, the the domestic situation with the communists there, uh, that was a situation of being directly having the strings pulled by Russia. So Albania, of course, no stranger to having uh, Russian uh, I, it, this would be too mild a way of saying it, I guess, but interference in the internal affairs. Albania is no stranger to that. It's no stranger, but you know, when your listening audience uh, wants to know about Albania, they have to know that Albania is not 
the Albanian nation. The Albanians were screwed after World War I by being unfairly divided into six different countries in order to settle that war. You know, the Ottoman Turks collapsed in 1912. Albanians put up their flag for independence in Vlora, in Albania, that time, but nobody was listening. And there, were, there was no one like Jody Aguardi that could speak for them. But I did what I could in Congress to wake up a lot of people when I was there from 1985 to 1990 to explain who these people are. Because my father was born in Italy, but he was an ethnic Albanian. His people in the 15th century fled the Ottoman Turks who occupied Albania for 450 years. An amazing story. When I went to Congress, I did not know all that history because my parents did not have the education that I got. In fact, they had practically no education because they came from the part of Italy that was just farming and was kind of poor. But my dad came here in 1929 speaking only two languages, Albanian and Italian. And then people want to know, Joe, where did you get this Albanian stuff from? Well, go to Italy today, southern Italy, from Naples on down, and you can find the remainder of that nation that fled the Ottoman Turks in the year 1460. Today, 51 Albanian-speaking villages, starting with my father's, the most famous, next to Naples, 40 kilometers out of Naples. And you go all the way down to Sicily, you got four more. But the bulk of them are in what they call Calabria, uh, near Casenza. So 51 Albanian-speaking towns, villages, Albanians call them Katundi, that's their name for village. And it's an amazing story that I had to go to Congress to learn about my father's history because when he came here, he was only 15, was not educated, and couldn't tell me the history of the Albanian people. And when I was raised in the Bronx in an Italian-American neighborhood, Rick, I thought my dad was speaking a dialect of Italian. It was hmm. only in Congress when I saw him speaking to Albanians from Yugoslavia. And I said, oh my God. What an epiphany this is for me. Here I, you know, raised one way, and then I, I figure out. But the traditions of the Albanian people carried on, and I knew what they were. And not too far different from the, the southern Italians. You know, Italy is a, an incredible country. It's got so many facets to it, whether the language differences, uh, the dialects. My mother comes from Bari, and you can tell the way she spoke Italian versus my dad, who came from Naples, there was a big difference right there. But listen, I'm going to be now this year, believe it or not, 82. So I've been around. Wow. And uh, I know a lot because I've had a lot of experience. Well, but I'm glad to be on your show. Ask me some tough questions. I will. I will. I, I just want to make one follow-up observation on what you said there. And that is when you're talking about the time of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, one of the great underrated villains of the 20th century, and I guess it's more than one person that was doing this, but the map makers of the time, because what you said about Albania reminds me of Iraq. They basically super glued three areas together that had nothing to do with one another, and then when, when we ended up, uh, you know, blundering in there and, uh, you know, you break it, you bought it, and trying to put it back together, and you come to find out, hey, it's three distinct parts of the country you know, this part hates this part, ethnic sectarianism. Uh, the map makers of that time, drawing those lines back uh, around the, uh, the 1910s, 1920s, a lot of screwed up things, uh, and we're still paying the price in a lot of ways, Joe. Right, but the Albanians come out of a different experience because there was a state called Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. uh, Yugoslavia was a state that was created for what they call the Southern Slavs. Yugo means south, 
Yugoslavia means Slavs. Uh, and if you look at the history of the Slavs, the Albanians have been in this area for thousands of years. The Slavs got there in the seventh century. Where did they come from? Ukraine, believe it or not. That's where, you know, the, uh, the bulk of the Slavs came from in, in history. But the Albanians did not have a voice. Uh, they didn't get out of the Ottoman Empire until 19, what, let's say 1912, when Ismail Trumali raised a flag in Blora in Albania. And that was a problem because the adversaries of the Albanians, the Greeks, number one, and that is because of the issue of religion, because the Albanians were forced to adopt the, uh, the Islamic religion. People want to know why did that happen? You know, Albanians, if you go back to the uh, century, let's see now. Yeah, you go back to four and a half centuries ago, all the Albanian people had Italian names, sounding names. It's only because the Turks, because of who they were, started to act like ISIS. If you didn't reconvert from Catholicism or from Orthodox or Christian Orthodoxy to Islam, they would behead you. And this is back, you know, 450 years ago. And and that was a, a big issue and a lot, a lot of Albanians wouldn't accept it, they were killed. But over the period of 450 years, you know, you can only last so long until you need a job and you need to support your family. So if the price is changing your religion, which in, in the case of the Albanians probably took 100 or 200 years because it's very tough to change them. Uh, and the same with the language. And the language was, uh, was made mainly Turkish and some form of Albanian that still exists today. A lot has been you know, done in a wrong way, trying to convert other people. And we still have this history in the Balkans. If you go to the Balkans today, and I'm an expert in this because when I was elected in 1984, and I went to Congress, there was a state called Yugoslavia, which was a very repressive state for the Albanian people. But it had eight juridical units. Six of them were republics, including Serbia, Macedonia, Montenegro, um, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and, and it had two independent provinces. The point is, Yugoslavia lasted because Tito was smart enough to be a broker between the West and the East, took money from Russia, took money from the United States. That's how the Serbs ended up one of the largest armies, if not the largest army in Europe. Because when Yugoslavia collapsed, Serbia then exercised its strength to take over everything that came out of Yugoslavia, they became an independent state when Yugoslavia collapsed, as did Macedonia and Montenegro. And maybe this is too heavy for your audience, but today we still have issues because of what came out of World War One, the, the wrong way that the uh, Versailles Agreement was applied. And since Albanians had no Giovanni in those days to speak up for them, <laughs> they, they, were, they were just uh, handled very brutally. Yes. By what was going on? They could not do anything. They couldn't change anything. And today, we still have the remnants of that. Now, yes. Kosovo is part of my history because because the Albanians only had a, a a province in Yugoslavia. Today, it's a state, and that's because of Jody Agordi and my wife Shirley Ploys. It took us twenty years after the collapse of Yugoslavia, and the book just came out on this. And it's on Amazon. The title of the book is "The End of Yugoslavia." at the beginning of freedom for the Albanian people. So people are going to now see the writing, and this book is not just a commentary. I made sure I kept all the official documents that people would need as evidence 
to believe it. Hardly, people can hardly believe that I was a new congressman and I was working with Bob Dole and working with uh, Senator Pell and uh, several other important uh, senators, uh, like uh, Biden, by the way. Uh, Biden in the beginning was kind of leaning towards the Serbs. I had to, in two hearings, educate him that he had the wrong information. And today he is very pro-Albanian. In fact, there's a, a monument to his son who died. As you know, he served mm -hmm. in the war, the army, and that's in Kosovo. So wow. he's a well-loved person now in Kosovo, and we hope he's going to do the right thing. We'll see. Well, sure, sure. And and we've so we've established your bona fides here as somebody who has a lot of kinship with what the Ukrainian people have been through, because clearly uh, the Albanians have been through a lot of their own garbage over a period of time. And uh, with, with everything that's happening with Ukraine, I want to touch on the timeline of when you were in Congress, because this is something sure. where it, it just kind of strikes me as being a little bit interesting. It's, I, I'm a child of basically the waning days of the Cold War, and those were the days when you were uh, in, in Congress. And it's a thing here, you know, you mentioned Biden, and I think of the Democratic figures that are still on the stage to some degree, John Kerry, some of the others who are still around. And I think that... have died, like uh, Congressman Gilman. Yes. You go to the House, we had a lot of support there. Congressman Gilman, Congressman Tom Lantos, who was the uh, only survivor of the Holocaust. He was born in Hungary. Right. He was extremely helpful for me on the Congressional Rights Caucus. Sure. In, in but and, uh, when I think of the flashpoint issues of the 80s vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets, uh, whether it be the Contras, whether it be uh, the Minuteman missiles, or, or any of the things like that at the time, it struck me in recent years, and, and maybe Biden and some of these other politicians who'd say, well, we were prescient, look at what Putin did. But it seemed to me that they've been a lot more anti-Putin than they ever were anti-Brezhnev, anti-Andropov. It kind of got a little different once Gorbachev was in there because there was a, a period of actual detente leading to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. But is this something that you've noticed as well? Because there wasn't a lot of harsh anti-Soviet rhetoric from the Democrats in the 80s, much like there's been the harsh anti-Putin rhetoric of recent years. And again, like I said, they can sit here and say, well, look at what Putin did. And, uh, you know, as somebody who I've been a little bit more of an advocate of realism in foreign policy, I have to admit maybe I wasn't hard enough on Putin. Uh, I, I have to maybe admit that uh, in, in looking back at it here. But have you noted that, that some of your colleagues that you served with didn't seem to be as anti-Soviet, at least publicly at the time, as they've been anti-Putin? Well, I'm not a student of history in that regard, but I can tell you that Putin deserves his uh, warts. Uh, what he did in Syria... What he did against the Kurds, who were our major supporters at that time, yes, it, 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 it's, it's ridiculous. The the use of working with Assad and chemical weapons, and how they destroyed Aleppo, all these towns were, in fact, that's was their training ground for what they're doing now. Right, they, they are destroying the, the the infrastructure, and they're coming back, and they're even now dropping these bombs that are, are uh, scatter and hurt the people. I mean, these are, these are really war crimes. They're going after, you know, innocent civilians. And you can see what happened in the hospital the other day. They're saying, no, that was taken over by the Ukraine uh, army, and uh, they, they used it as a as a way to, to fool us. No, it's not. There were people that were killed there, including children, pregnant women. So it's amazing the lack of true truth, true information that is just spread by Putin and his people. 
You know, when I was in college, uh, I was in a college that uh, I was in a Jesuit school, so I learned a lot of, of things, not only as an accountant, but as a, as a, uh, as a liberal uh, arts maven as well. And if you go back and you see what has happened over the years, it's incredible. Even someone I never respected, the head of the FBI, Jed Yehuva, wrote a book, and the Jesuits always wanted us to read that book. It was called Masters of Deceit, describing communism, mm-hmm. how it always got its way because they lied and they used people. Masters of Deceit. Now, he wasn't an honest guy even uh, to me, as you know, but mm-hmm. he wrote that book. And I had a Jesuit that escaped hungry. His name was Father Varga. And uh, I remember when I was in my senior year, I told him, you know, Father, I've got now three years A's, and it's not easy to get A in a Jesuit school in philosophy. Sure. Uh, so here it is, and I'm going now in my senior year and aiming for four years straight with straight A's. And I went up to him because the first exam he gave was so tough. You had to practically memorize the book. And I said, Father Varga, I guess this is going to eliminate me from that gold medal I thought I might get on graduation. Well, you know what? The thing that impresses me most is when we talk about dialectical materialism and communism. And if you do well in those, you get your A's, I will make sure I'll take care of it. And he did. Because I ended up only one of two people who got straight A's in philosophy for four years straight in the Jesuit school. So I was trained not just as an accountant, that's what Jesuit schools do. They want to train the person. Yes. They don't want to just teach you a, a vocation or make you into a, an expert this or an expert that. And I'm so happy that in the Bronx, where I was born, right on Fordham Road, there's a campus and there's Fordham University and Fordham Preparatory School. And I worked in my father's uh, food market just a few blocks away in the, what you would now would call, or in those days was even more, the Little Italy section of the Bronx. I went to Catholic schools there. We moved to Worcester County when I was 15, and I became Joey the Waiter for four years in one of the richest country clubs in America. I learned how rich people they lived. In fact, when I became a partner in Arthur Anderson, we went to fancy restaurants, and I impressed upon us. They didn't know how I knew all the wines, how I knew how they prepared all the, the food, you know, like filet of sole bon femme. Mm-hmm. They, thought I came, they thought I came from a classy family that was very wealthy. I came from a, uh, you know, I was a poor kid from the Bronx, but I worked as a waiter and learned it fast and, and learned how rich people live. In any case, I had this kind of experience. Father comes here in 1929 looking for a job. And what, what were the jobs in 1929? Hey, people were starving in this part of Italy. They would take anything. So after a couple of months just shining shoes, he realizes that the African-American people in Harlem loved collard greens, mustard greens, kale, and he was a farmer. So he found the Bronx Terminal Market next to uh, Harlem, not too far you know, from that part. He found out how to bring the crates down. He put them on the corner of 125th Street, uh, and I don't know what the avenue was, and three years later, he has a store in what they call today Sugar Hill, 145th Street in Harlem. And, and he became successful. I'm his oldest son. By 1940, when I was born, that was a store in the Bronx, and I was raised in that store. People say, Joe, why do you like so many different people? Blacks, Hispanics, Italians, Irish. I said, that was the neighborhood I lived in. And that's the problem we have today in America. We're segregating each other. Yes. We're separating. It's just like these 
people now are looking for easy ways to describe who they are so they mention a party. They don't really understand what that party stands for anymore. My own party, Republican Party, has been destroyed. I, I was a good conservative. Uh, being a CPA, I always felt I should be a, a Republican because my dad never took a welfare check, worked his hat off, not that that's wrong, uh, for other people who need it. Although he thought he needed it, he never would even think about it. So we worked for everything, as many immigrants did, and I learned a lot by being around all these different people. So at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, here I am working in a super, not a supermarket, it's like a mini market. It had vegetables, it had groceries, and, and, and then I end up going to this country club and see how really rich people lived in America. And you might say, well, who were those people that were Jewish in that country club in Westchester County? It was called Elmwood Country Club. They were the big shots in the garment industry. They even built a hotel on weekends. They would just get away from all that, you know, mess in New York City and go up there. And and here I am in the morning. I had to, it wasn't difficult for me to get up early because my father used to get me up sometimes 4.30 in the morning to help him load the truck of the grains. We, we, we used to go down together at the Bronx Terminal Market. So here I am uh, now in this uh, first year. They needed someone to deliver the food in the morning. At 6 o'clock, you had to be ready, and so I did that. In those years, the unions weren't strong, so I went home. Not went home. I, I stayed someplace there. At 10 o'clock, I'd come back to do lunch. And then I finished lunch at 3, and then I had to come back at, at 6. So it wasn't a straight thing. In fact, in the last two years, I became the card waiter. So I was going from 6 o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock, and people said, hey, where did you get the money to buy that new car? You're only 20. I got it from the tips from very wealthy people, believe it or not. So I was raised really in two ways. European, because my father, you know, treated me the way he was treated. Evidently, I'm the oldest son, so I took the brunt of it in my family. And then I was raised very much American, because I saw how all these different people lived, whether you were black or Irish or Italian in the Bronx, or whether you were, you know, a wealthy person in a country club. Uh, I got this. So when I... You know, then went to, you know, graduated from Fordham University after a great education. Uh, I was picked as the only one picked to do an internship with a major accounting firm. I didn't even think about going into accounting at the time. Uh, I, I hadn't really decided what I wanted to do. But I then interned with Arthur Anderson and then took the job there. Spent 22 years in the world's largest accounting firm. It was called the Marines of the Accounting uh, profession, and I brought that with me to Congress. And what is the first thing I do? I notice that the accounting system in government stinks. That they don't put all the liabilities on the books. They have guarantees. They have insurance. They don't use the rules that are used by banks and insurance companies. And then they have to prepare statements. And even till today, you can't get an audited financial statement from the U.S. government. And that was my bill that I put in in 1987 for a CFO Act so that every major department and agency, almost 30 of them, would be forced to give a set of books that could be audited. Until today, they're not doing it. And if you look at my website, truthingovernment.org, you'll see the speeches that I give, and there's one in there that'll blow your mind. I go down to the uh, Reagan National Defense Forum in California, City Valley, it's in his library. Why? Because I was told, if you want to see all the spenders in America, go see those lobbyists 
open a defense department, and there was 800 of them there. Mm-hmm. And I got up, it's like I was in this lion's den, to give a speech to chastise them about not being able to account. I said, you know, you've turned Congress into a place where everybody wants to spend and nobody wants to count. Well, I'm a CPA, and I know those rules. And the book I wrote when I left Congress is called Unaccountable Congress. It doesn't add up. I unbundled. I peeled back the the, the, the layers of, of bullshit that you had to go through to understand what we're, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So today, the debt is not $30 trillion. That's what they are counting on almost just a cash basis. It's somewhere between $100 trillion and $200 trillion. That's all the debt that's not put on the books right now. Right. It's a, it's a shame that the people are not getting a good count from one of the big, biggest countries in the world. That is if true. If you want to see me in action, look at that six-minute speech I gave on the floor in front of all those lobbyists, in front of all the generals. It's there on YouTube. What else can I tell you? Very much worth checking out, definitely, because, yeah, the uh, the military-industrial complex, I, I'm always oh, somebody that feels like they have a lot they answer for in my book, and uh, I, it's just unfortunate how much money they're probably making at a time like this. The war merchants will always come out uh, great in times of war, but on, on a defense note here, just to ask you this, in terms of our national defense uh, at a time of uncertainty like this, so I, I want to ask you where you come down on this, because on, on the one hand, somebody with your demonstrable human rights record, and obviously it's it's tearing at your heart to watch what we're watching in Ukraine, I, I think as it is for uh, anybody with a soul at a time like this, versus I would think that you would even know more about this than the average person just based on the briefings that you were getting. I know that people in Congress uh, get confidential briefings on matters of grave national security, as I'm sure was the case when you were there, and Again, the dangers in overstepping in our responses here, the Biden administration, and I'm critical of any number of things on any number of policies on them on a daily basis, but the hesitation to do anything that could help set the stage for World War III when you're dealing with a known irrational actor right now in Putin, who uh, clearly uh, at this point is... is one person after another who has dealt with him basically has kind of indicated the man's off his rocker at this point. So we are yeah, at an enhanced... His, uh, you know, his acquisition of nuclear weapons and, and the fact that he's got probably the second biggest arsenal besides us, that's created a deterrent against us. Yes. We don't want to do a no-fly zone, right. which we had called for, by the way, in Kosovo, and it was employed in, in part. And uh, the problem is that we don't want to trigger the Third World War. When you're dealing with someone so irrational, yes. who sees history different, I mean, he thinks that Ukraine, Ukraine was a part of Russia for a long time, and now he wants to take it back. That's wrong. He's seeing it the wrong way. So he's now, and he's still offended deeply by the fact that after the Cold War, Soviet Union disappeared. So he's trying to see in his own mind uh, how, how do we restore that Soviet Union under me? Because I've got power that these other guys didn't have because they didn't have my discipline. You remember Yeltsin? He was drinking all the time. Right. So, and where did, where did Putin come from? He came because Yeltsin fa- failed. And that's right. where he began as a KGB agent. Right. And he's a clever guy, and he probably stays up day and night just thinking about how he gets more power. And they well, get yeah. it through devious means. They lie, they steal. 
They do all kinds of things, and, and, and this is why we can't trust them. Right. Not at all. So where do we go now? It's going to be very difficult. Uh, I know the, the limitations we have, but thank God we're pouring in the weapons, and thank God that the Ukrainian people, the males, have gone back, and they've held up. Putin never thought he would face this kind of opposition in a million years. But, you know, the capital is still there, Kiev, uh, Kiev, and it's, it's surrounded little by little bit closing in on it, and I'm hoping that this President Zelensky and his people have something ready that we're not sure of what it is yet to save that that capital. But believe me, it's not going to be taken, and if for some reason it is taken, the opposition is going to go on for a long time. These Ukrainians are not going to give up. It's going to be very difficult right. for the Russians to try to control them. Well, exactly. Have, the Russians have the power right now. Yes. The, the firepower. They're, they're taking one on the team, real, or for the team, really, for the rest of Eastern Europe right now, because any fear of Russia going into any other uh, country at this point in time, they can't even handle Ukraine at this point. So Ukraine, I think, they're going to be able to, at minimum, keep them pinned down and keep it from being a wider land war in Eastern Europe, it would seem, because Russia, and again, they were counting on getting a quick win here. Uh, they didn't, and uh, hopefully, God willing, it's not going to be won at all. But uh, what we're doing about it, as you said, there is, of course, the weapons, and that is significant, uh, as well as the financial aid that is pouring in there. But beyond that, uh, the, the, the notion, and this is just about unprecedented what's been done, particularly in the, in, it's completely unprecedented in the age of globalization, the disconnect, a, a, a strong disconnect in the last two weeks of Russia from the global economy whether it be the international banking system on down, uh, the ruble has been pounded uh, to basically uh, less than a cent at this point in time here, which this is one of these things where, you know, you get into times of war, and just like on a moral level, I see things as, you know, things that might be necessary, but still necessary evils. Like, I don't rejoice, and I would kind of cast a, 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 a stink eye at somebody that would rejoice in what's being done to the Russian people about this, because there's going to be a lot of suffering there, a nation of 130 million people, and they're sort of the hostages that are caught in the crossfire, at least the ones that aren't complicit in the war machine over there. But as far as what that's going to do in that country, uh, where, again, now supposedly I, I'd heard today that uh, Putin is putting forward a policy of nationalization, trying to seize some of the assets of the institutions that are pulling out of there. So that's one answer that he has. But what it's likely to look like inside of Russia and what it's likely to look like with the world economy now that there's an iron curtain that's going down economically between Russia and the rest of the world. And these oligarchs, you know, I love what I've been seeing about Italy now confiscating uh, these huge yachts costing mm-hmm. $200 million, $300 million, uh, and estates and fillers. This is going to... These are the people that Putin made rich in order to keep his power. Right. Okay? And, and, and they now are going to suffer a lot. In fact, I, I had a little kind of a fantasy in my mind. I said, would it be nice if, if Italy or one of them would take those things right out to the middle of the ocean and start bombing them? Let them sink. <laughs> but let these guys feel the pain right. that the regular people are feeling. Right. You know, they live like kings and queens. and It's amazing. But that's now at least... Uh, the contribution that Europe is making to confiscate this wealth to show that it was wealth that was obtained through illicit means, and that's really a good a good sign. So it's not over, but I can tell you that the short-term pain 
it's going to result in very long-term pain for Russia, short-term pain for Ukraine or the Ukraines. And the fact that they're being received with open arms by Poland, by Hungary, and Moldova and the other states, I mean, it makes you feel good that we've got this humanity still around. Yes. Uh, but it, it's painful for the Ukrainian people, no question about it. But I love the way the men are separating from their families and it's, it's just tearful to see them do that because they have to go back and now defend the land, defend the country. Uh, and that's what they're doing. It, it is much. truly incredible. It is. And uh, it's a point in time when uh, I, I think we were questioning, a lot of people around the world were questioning if there were still leaders around anywhere like Zelensky. I think that's why he has struck such a chord with people yeah. because it's incredibly rare. I mean, we can we can have self-pity and look at our last string of presidents in this country going way back, and we can have a lot of self-pity about that, and I think justifiably so. But the rest of the world, it's not like they're teeming with statesmen either, Joe. So guys like the, this guy, the, with the job that he's been doing there, guys like this don't grow on a tree. And it's just all the more amazing when you look at the fact that, uh, again, I, I believe that he did have professional training as a lawyer and everything like that, but as somebody who had come... Uh, into politics as an entertainer, and in the poly yes. in, in, in the in, in the parallel world of Ukrainian entertainment, playing the Ukrainian president on television, and that paving the way to actually becoming the Ukrainian president, it would be easy to look at a guy like this and and, and think, you know, is this guy going to be equal to this moment in history, which is would overwhelm ninety nine point nine percent of leaders, and somehow or another, lo and behold, he's the other point one percent that's up to the job. Right. Now you know everything in the world could have, not everything, but some things have unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's one I have to mention to you because, you know, Kosovo is still struggling because Serbia is so intransigent for its equality. It is a state. We made it a state, but still five uh, countries in the European uh, Union have not recognized it. And you have a few, uh, few more than that in the United Nations. So, while it is operating as a state, it doesn't have yet the respect it should. But you know what? The United States loves the Albanian people because of how they fought so hard uh, for everything. And one of the things that I think will happen as an unintended consequence is that NATO may be opened up earlier. Uh, now, already we have a camp in there that I created called Bonsteel. So, and there are NATO troops there. But it's not part of NATO. Uh, but Bonsdale's there, and the U.S. Uh, uh, military has trained a lot of the Albanians there. But I think it's important that NATO be extended to uh, Bosnia and to Kosovo so that they know in that, in that part of Europe you have some of the strongest people to help defend Europe as well. So that now has opened up a door for me and Shirley as we work as part of the, uh, the lobby uh, for the Albanians, it's an independent lobby, volunteer lobby, but it's been very successful and powerful because we deal with the right people, like right now, Senator Menendez. We don't, it's a, it's a bipartisan lobby. We don't deal with a party. Uh, we deal with the issues and the people. And right now, we now have NATO. We're drafting up something that we're going to send to uh, Senator Menendez to hopefully pass on to President Biden. Uh, I mean, so that Biden knows the best thing he could do now for the Albanians is to give them the status of being part of NATO so they can really fight for the freedom in the uh, Western Balkans. Because that's under pressure today. Why? 
guess who's right next to Albania? Uh, uh, Kosovo. Right. And that's Serbia. And Serbia is like, uh, you know, a grandchild of, of, of the Slavs. And, and, and it's going to be very difficult unless Kosovo gets the support from the United States early so it's recognized by the world as a, as a fully uh, democratic state, which it is. So that's one thing. The other thing is, we have, we're the ones, I remember back in 1999, that convinced Congressman Gilman, he was chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, not the Senate. And we put in a resolution to condemn Milosevic. Remember Slobodan Milosevic? Right. He was the great Hitler. They were burning people in their houses. They had trucks coming down from Serbia collecting all kinds of things to take back to take back to there. In fact, there's still mass graves. They took the bodies from Kosovo and buried them under police stations, under asphalt parking lots. They're still trying to get them back. So the point is you got now the opportunity to do the same thing. So I got the old resolution that human and we helped them draft it, had why whereas, 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 you know, listing all the indictments as to why Putin is a war criminal, which he is. And we're going to now get that out to remind people that, you know, from Hitler to Milosevic to Putin was not a quantum leap. So we got to now educate the public and get this guy to the court in The Hague. Yes. It's not going to be easy. No. And I say to myself, how are we going to get him there? Well, then we got to take a lesson from our Jewish brothers and sisters. You remember when they couldn't get Eichmann there? They mm. sent the submarine. They just took him. Right. on the sub. Brought him back to Israel and put him on trial, and then they hung him. Yeah. Almost like the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe we can ring up the Mossad and uh, figure out uh, how to uh, get Putin into the right hands here. But uh, yes, between uh, NATO and uh, the EU, uh, there are a lot of uh, places going to be looking at vulnerable countries in Eastern Europe with open hands and in the time ahead here. And uh, just to uh, kind of bring it full circle here uh, of all the different aspects that we've been talking about with the present uh, crisis, uh, Joe, whether it be economically, geopolitically, militarily, anything we didn't touch on yet that you think is important, please take it away. Well, I went to Congress and I thought that I would get hung up. I went on the Government Operations Committee and being the first certified public accountant ever elected to Congress, House or Senate in history, I said, I got to leave my mark here, at least leave them with a good set of books. And I wrote a book called Unaccountable Congress. It's still out there. I'm not asking people to run out and buy any books, but I gave my experience after leaving Congress in 1992. It was like being a whistleblower. Well, I didn't take any money. I didn't want any money. Didn't become a lobbyist. Lobbyists make a fortune. Just move to Washington. You're good for a million bucks. I didn't do that. I became an independent volunteer lobbyist the Albanian people for America on the national debt. And the third one that I forgot to mention before, I'm going to tell you. When I got to Congress, a black historian in Mount Vernon, New York, I had a huge, don't forget, I got elected as a Republican in an extremely Democrat district. No one thought I could get elected. Right. I counted three times. But in that district, I got the largest African-American population of any Republican in America. You're talking about city of Mount Vernon, southern part of Yonkers, and the Rochelle. Those now are in the Bronx, you know, redistricting. They put those now in, in, they separated them. But in those days, I had them all. So I had to quickly figure out how am I going to help these people, especially I'm getting educated by a, a black historian, a military historian, Leroy Ramsey. He says, Joe, did you know that in World War One and World War Two, a million, 550,000 African-Americans, black Americans served 
Hundreds were recommended for our nation's highest military award. It's called the Medal of Honor. By the way, it's not the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's the wrong name. It's the Medal of Honor. The highest didn't get in any of the armed services, any one of the three. I said, uh, you know, that doesn't, I'm a, I told this guy, uh, Dr. Ramsey, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm a CPA. Those numbers don't add up. What's the problem? He said, Joe, did you know there was segregation in World War One and World War II? I didn't know it. You know, I got this great education from the Jesuits. No one told me we had segregation starting in 1913 by Woodrow Wilson. And only, and it, it lasted until Truman finally got rid of it by executive order in 1947. Mm-hmm. So I put my, I said to myself, this is injustice at its height. And I decided to pour in myself into it. But I'm not going to get, I get to speak an hour, but the point is, I'm still working on it. In 35 years, I'm now responsible for nine medals of honor. And I'm working on what I think is going to be my last and most important, Dory Miller, Messman, not a seaman even, a Messman, Pearl Harbor, World War II, and I believe he's going to get it. I can't give you the inside information, but it looks like we're aiming to get it on Veterans Day this year. And, and I'm going to do some very important things with that. In fact, I got my daughter working on it right now, Kara. She is so mesmerized by that issue. Excellent. And I sent the information. She says, Dad, we have so many prominent black Americans in the music industry. In right. fact, I got one. I'm going to start talking to him, and we're going to get them involved in this issue. You, you started this. And I didn't realize you were doing this. I said, Kara, if you look at my website, this Truth in Government, you will see me speaking all over the country about this issue to wake up America. Yep. And I'm proud to do it. So here it is. I made my mark in different ways, and I did a great thing by training my daughter, Kara, to be smart and to be active and to be truthful. And whatever you do, I said, Kara, do it like your dad did in accounting. You know, do it all the way. And she did. You remember, she was a judge on American Idol. That's right. Mm-hmm. Did a great she job. 300 songs, and uh, 162 made the charts. And she's, and she's still doing it. She just found another artist, and, and I, I didn't know the song. And she said, the thing hit the, the top of the charts in the last month. It's called, um, this artist is not Adele, but like Adele, she was scorned by a boyfriend. or Okay. This, it's a younger woman named uh, Gail. And oh. the song that came out was, was incredible. It's, it's like an ABC song. A, B, C, D, E, F, U. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> Oh, Kara had something to do with that. That's amazing. That's amazing that Kara had something to do with that. That's I did not know that till you till you said that right there. And uh, she she took this young girl at fourteen. Kara's great at discovering talent and then nurturing it. Yeah. So that girl now is seventeen. Yeah. And she's now on the charts. They made number one with that song. That is that is that is amazing. Uh, You know, certainly uh, talent really runs uh, in the family, Joe. And and I have to say. That is another show, right? Yes. Later on, we'll talk about that. Oh yeah, I mean, ta- talent and commitment runs in the family, and uh, I, I have to say, you know, and, uh, along those lines, uh, you know, I, when when I knew that uh, going back to the previous administration here, that it was going to be a time of missed opportunities and uh, a, a lot of things like that, the first sign of it that I had was during the transition period, and I thought to myself. 
If Joe DiAguardi isn't getting asked to be director of the Office of Management and Budget, that will be a sign that things have already gone off the rails. And little did I know how badly things would go off the rails, but you should have been OMB director, Joe. Well, listen, uh, I was well-trained, and I had two marvelous parents that came here as immigrants and started from scratch, and they raised me very much the way they were raised. And since they were both products of Europe, it wasn't easy. But, you know, you learn a lot when you have that tough raising or that toughness up front. It, it, it makes you a better person. And I remember in the store many times my dad and mom would be on their feet uh, sometimes in the weekends, 12 hours a day. But I'd always see them, you know, kissing each other, you know, a little kiss here and there. And that's what we need in, in the world. Parents that love their kids and the kids loving them back. And that's what makes, I think, society more than anything else. I'm a product of that, and I raise Cara the same way. You are, and uh, it, it unfortunately really seems to be bygone values here. And, and I'll, I'll just bring this thing all the way around here by, by saying this, that uh, you know, at, at a point in time where, uh, and again, I have gotten to be over the last couple of years so disillusioned even with the politicians that I, that I liked. I, I, I'm at a point in time now where I, I just... I, I've just sort of drifted. To, I, I still have the things I believe in, but as far as believing that anything good will ever happen, I guess I've just sort of drifted towards nihilism at this point. But so well, I want to. Don't get too cynical. Now well, I, I'll, I'll try. You have, right, you have right to be, but uh, it, it, you know, when you look at things in the broad, the broad way, the big picture, seeing things whole. Yeah. You see things whole. Believe me, there are problems all over the place. True. But you got to celebrate the successes, too. Yes, well, that's true. And that's where, in that light, uh, again, it's customary here uh, at this point to, to thank our guests for coming on. We always enjoy the conversation with you. But I, I just want to take it a step further and just say, at, at a time like this, and we've already covered here tonight, as we have previously with, with you, how much you've lived the American dream, I want to just thank you for even past your time of being in Congress of being a great citizen and giving back to this country because, again, I just think it's all too rare. I just think we don't see that from nearly enough people. So thanks not just for making the time for us uh, here today, uh, but, but, but also for all that you do, Joe, to try to help out this country at a time when not enough people are doing that. Well, thank you so much. I really feel good about myself, but I feel better about myself when people like you say it. Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, it's always a great conversation, Joe. And, uh, you know, again, listen, I know we've talked about any no number of other things that are not uh, pleasant, like the national debt and things like that. But compared to war in Ukraine, everything else we've talked about previously all seems manageable. So anything else would be lighter, fair than what we tackled here today. I look forward to the next conversation on something like that and uh, tackling the, the problems of the world that aren't rooted in this kind of uh, you know, state-sponsored evil such as we're seeing in Ukraine. Thank you. I, I agree with you 100%. And uh, as, as someone said at one point, this too shall pass. Yes. The world will continue. And uh, what did Winston Churchill say? He was my hero from the, the last two centuries. He said, success is not fatal and failure is not final. But the key thing is to keep going forward and making things happen. And, and that's really how I feel in life. That's true. That's what we got to keep doing. And as that uh, continues to be the case, as the world keeps spinning here subsequently, uh, we hope, as this doesn't go to World War III, but uh, on the other side of this thing here, uh, you know, we will catch up with you again, Joe. Thank you so much for making time for us today. 